Hello, and welcome to another episode of the ABBA Podcast with John McDonald. If the ABBA Podcast isn't on your favourite platform, let us know and we'll get it sorted. Here's your host, John McDonald. Welcome to the ABBA Podcast. Uh, my guests today are Florian Berndt from Germany and Felicia Muddell um, from Albuquerque in New Mexico. Um, Felicia and Florian are, are friends and colleagues that I greatly appreciate their wisdom, their understanding of, of God and the scriptures. And we are going to have a chat today. And well, you'll find out what it's about as we go along. Welcome, Felicia. Welcome, Florine. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you both today. Yeah. Same. <laughs> uh, that was a short response. Yep, same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> German, <laughs> very, very straightforward. <laughs> Perfunctory. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to be with you guys. It's, yeah, I'm really looking, forward, been looking forward to this. Yeah. So just to let folks know a little bit about us, um, Florian, what kind of was your religious experience growing up or did you grow up in a faith tradition or? What? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I grew I grew up with uh, my family um, uh, was a Roman Catholic, so very liberal Roman Catholic. Um, that's not quite true. Um, so I basically grew up, grew up in the Black Forest area in in Germany. So my grandparents and uh, on my mother's side, um, they're what you would probably call the indigenous Black Forest people. You know um, that that. So, so you grew up in the, the basically the German Bible Belt. And I grew up in the German Bible Belt. That's where, or yeah, no, that's where I live now. But oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so um, Germany was very much separated into Protestant and Catholic um, uh, land, and um, so um, I grew up more in the Catholic part. But now I'm living more in the Protestant part, and um, yeah. So that was my religious upbringing, very Roman Catholic, and when I was. Um, around 11 years old, there was like a, a, a renewal, revival, awakening going through our town. And it was like a very, very, very late offshot of the Jesus people movement. And as you know, my story. And uh, had, that explains the beard. That explains the beard. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have that one when I was 11 years old, but um, no, and uh, that really uh, sent me on a complete other uh, uh, path. And um, yeah. Um, then Pentecostal, charismatic, all this kind of stuff. And oh, you're all yeah. I'm one of those, yeah, <laughs> yeah, who's been through a couple of things. And, and yeah, um, but I want, what have you guys to say? You know, I, I can share more, but yeah. Do you want to hear more? I yeah, don't know. it kills a little bit more. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so. Um, I went and so when I found out that I wasn't the only one having these experiences as a kid, um, uh, that there was this movement going on and uh, we just started together and it, that we were starting to preach and things like that. And, and uh, we, we had all this very long hair and um, uh, things like that. So kind of neo hippies. And um, then we started preaching in the Catholic churches and stuff like that, organizing youth events. And, and <laughs> it was a crazy time. I mean, everyone thought it, these Jesus freaks and, um, and um, yeah, filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, experiencing all this realm. And um, 
And then when I was, uh, then I, uh, I got baptized in the Pentecostal church um, down the road where I met my wife and 20, 22 years ago. And um, yeah, and then I, I had a burnout in my early 20s because I was like ministering and all this kind of stuff. And, and But um, my family background was very broken. So for my parents and um, during this time, I also learned and that's why I asked about if, if I should continue because um, I'm probably going to st jump straight into the topic. Um, um, Spoiler alert. Relationship. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my relationship with my parents were, especially with my dad, was he was a very loving person, but he also was a very broken person. So he had these times mm -hmm. when he were, had this a lot of rage and stuff like that going on. And um, we experienced a lot of um, abuse and, 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 and rage and anger, violence and this kind of thing. And also after um, my dad, when... Um, those who know my testimony or story uh, testimony um, um when when i was about at the same time i encountered jesus for the first time consciously and um, was when um my my dad he suffered from depression and he went to um to meet the therapist and in that and the therapist did an experiment where they started the group therapy and everyone in the group um, split up with their spouse and married someone from the group so um, and then from that moment on, before that, I was like the apple of my father's eye. But then that changed, and he got remarried and so on. And I lived in I lived with him while my siblings lived with my mom. But what happened was that my my wife always says it was a bit like the Cinderella story, me living there. But um, I I kind of internalized the whole thing about the rage and the anger and projected it onto God. You know, and that was how I did my ministry. You know, yeah, God is loving and all those kind of things, and and lots of stuff were happening. People getting healed and all, all these things, and um, but I burned out to the point where I said I don't even ever want to be Christian anymore. Even though I had all these experiences, and that's when God started to real, real his parental nature to me. You know, and um, and uh, should I go on? <laughs> Okay, <laughs> okay, I, I try to wrap it up. <laughs> what, what what do you mean his parental nature, Florian? Yeah, I got to. Uh, he started speaking to me that he really wants that he 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 is my father and he wants to be my father and in, in my everyday life. Later on, that changed also. He dealing with my mother issues um, later in life, so that's why I say parental because God's both, obviously. Yeah. And um, and a lot more came out of this, but. Um, what happened is that uh, I got married and moved to England. I, I kind of um, uh, got over the burnout in, in the sense that one day I woke up and discovered, I don't know, you know, who you are anymore. But continued in ministry, we moved to England and um, and then we went and I, um, I went to a father heart uh, seminar and then um, had nothing to do with the ministry we we. Uh, not nothing to do with father art ministries um it was in england somewhere but uh the man there was preaching and it wasn't particular great or something and i couldn't understand his accent and uh, my english was very bad back then it's just a school english and um but he said if you want to meet your father come forward you know and and i didn't feel anything you know very german but i had this religious thing going on whenever there was like an altar call or something i would go you know it's just a performance driven thing and i went there and as soon as my knees hit the ground you know i had this suddenly this vision came and it was like a movie that i was suddenly in and i had all this experience of like my dad taught me to ride my bike and all this kind of stuff 
And the father came and he just held me in his arms. And I just experienced this immense uh, inpouring of love. And, and what happened was that I started just crying. And at this point, I hadn't cried for 10 years. Because when my parents told me that um, they would get a divorce, I promised myself I would never again cry in my life. So you can imagine that didn't look very pretty. Everything came out. They had to carry me out of the room, the ministry team. And it was snot and everything. <laughs> But <laughs> so that, I w- they carried me to another room. And then it, for, for a couple of weeks, it was just like his love pouring in. And after that, my whole theology got reconfigured. And um, that, that has started me on a completely new journey. And one of the first things that happened was that my theology of the cross um, changed. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the first thing that really went out of the window. In the Pentecostal church, I had learned basically that we are so disgusting to God that he can't look at us. And um, I didn't even learn that in the Catholic church, would you believe it? But um, that he can't look at us. And the only way that actually he can accept us is because he rejected Jesus for us. So Because Jesus became this sin and now like us. Mm. And God could finally take basically his rage and his anger out on him and reject Jesus. That was even the teaching when we did the teach, uh, when we um, heard about how to deal with rejection was about because God rejected Jesus. Now he accepts you. Isn't that great? And wow. Yeah. So. Um, okay. I want to stop where, where here. You I don't want to get, be the only one talking. <laughs> well, you go off and get some therapy. Felicia and I will carry on. And <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> We know a few good people who could do that, yeah. Yeah, Sorry. That's all right. Felicia, what what about you? What was your background in faith and belief and all that stuff? Oh, my gosh. I made this note just then. Thank you for sharing that, Florian. I I made a note, (laughs) 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 Florian-Paul. As soon as you said that, like, the first one of your things that changed was the theology of the cross. I was thinking about how radical Paul's transformation was, right? And mm. that like, he has this Damascus Road experience and his life has changed and things start reordering. And I feel mm. like in my, my um, formation, it was a little bit more like Peter and the crew in the sense that, you know, even though um, Peter and them had accepted Jesus and they knew Jesus, their ways stayed primarily um, Judaic. You know, they Mm. still really much were just people who followed the laws and rules of Judaism, but were now Christians, you know, known by this new new thing because of Jesus Christ. And my growing up was a lot of of that. It was just a very um, normal Christianity that didn't change, even though I was in and out of different denominations. I started in um, a lot of Protestant denominations here in the in America, you know, United Church of Christ, um, AME, which is African Methodist Episcopal, and then my grandmother was a missionary Baptist. So those were like my childhood things. And then my mom became born again, and it took us into the Pentecostal world, and we started attending Word of Faith churches, and then. When I actually um, went away to university, I was asking for, you know, charismatic type church. And they sent me to a largely uh, predominantly black Pentecostal denomination called Church of God in Christ, which I had never experienced before and until then. And, um, you know, and so it's been this tattered 
um, multicolored coat of different um, church denominations. And I can add to that Episcopalian and, you know, some other things as well. Um, and then on into adulthood, we primarily stayed in an evangelical charismatic kind of background, but across denominations, there were still these, um, what I'm going to tie to the rules, right? So Judaism had this rule. So there were still these, these, um, this thread of Christian rules, regardless of the denomination that we were in. And that was pretty much life. And, and the things from the pulpit um, were not transformative things. It was, these are your framework. And as long as you live within this framework and this moral guideline, you can check all the boxes so that when you die, you don't go to hell and you go here to heaven. So it's all of this, um, you know, eternal conscious torment. I mean, that's literally like everything is all about the afterlife of you don't want to burn. So definitely turn and everything <laughs> is structured for this one thing. There is yeah. no, you have a father in heaven who loves you. There is no, um, this is, you know, the heart is who you are. And once the heart is transformed, you don't have to live, live by these guidelines. So there's no like Damascus road experience is what I'm saying. There's no, there's no thing that begins to reorder your insight. And so you are always stuck like a fish on a hook, needing someone from the pulpit to instruct you on what to do next in the manual so that you can modify your behavior to live. That was that was my Christianity. And, mm -hmm. and inside of a behavior modification that looked holy, that looked all of these right things, I was seething inside with rage and anger. And I was not a happy person. I wasn't a good person. I, I really hated church, but, you know, I'd been sold a bag of grits on this eternal conscious torment thing. And I just knew that I didn't like fire enough that I wanted to burn forever. So, you know, um, and, and honestly, I'm, I'm grateful for even, even all of that. I'm grateful for it because the discontent and the disconnection with my whole being led me to keep searching for something. Even when I didn't know that I was consciously searching, I would say there has to be more, there has to be more. And what led me to more actually took me into kind of, you know, a very similar experience of um, learning of God as father. And, and then not only God as father, but also God as mother. So both of those father mother issues that need to be healed. So we, we share that in common. But something about the healing of that, I, I think when your God concept is healed, then you start to be healed as well. Mm. Or for some people, maybe it's the opposite, where when you actually start working on yourself, then also your God concept is healed. But, but inside of that, that's where the reordering came. Like all of a sudden I realized, oh, none of those other things were to lead to transformation. They were to keep me in a seat so that someone could continue to have a job, right? And so that wasn't really about me. That was more about job security. Um, and so now that I'm at a place where, oh, okay, let's take off all of the paint, all of the muck, all of the gunk that I've been told about God that may not be true. And then let me really allow spirit to tell me what's true about God. Mm. And it was in that that I began to have 
that Pauline kind of Damascus experience. But up until that point, it had been very much just like, this is just a badge of what it is. And, you know, it's going to be that until forever. And thankfully, it didn't stay that. But that was kind of the, the road. Cool. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, for, like Florian, I, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. My parents were not religious. Um, my mom was Protestant. My dad was Catholic. And the tradition was in those days that the kids were brought up in the dad's faith. Now, neither my mom or dad went to church, uh, so, but we were sent. I was an altar boy, you know, all that, this thing. But when my dad died, it was suddenly, I realized how empty it all was. I had no personal experience of God or anything. And that the priests were, were scary. You would go to the confessional and you would dread if it was one of the older priests because they wouldn't close the curtain. They would keep the curtain open so that they could see who was making the confession. So then you lied in the confessional about what you'd re- what what your sins were. <laughs> you know, you didn't talk about masturbation or anything like that, or lust. You said, "I told a lie, Father." You know, <laughs> or there was one priest who uh, I was horrified by. He would, you know, someone would be sitting with their baby, and the baby would cry, and he'd stop the service and say, "Take that baby out." <laughs> it was like. So that partly helped to form my image of God. And then I was at Roman Catholic school uh, and I had a few beatings and, you know, at the hands of teachers. And I always remember once I went to a scout group and one Sunday a month, we should, we should all go with the scout group to, to the Sunday mass. And one boy didn't go one week. And the scoutmaster said to him, why weren't you there? He said, well, my family had a, an event and I went to the Church of Scotland with them, which is the Presbyterian Church. And he slapped him across the face. So, so this, is, this is my concept of religion and God. It's all fear-filled. It's all driven by the threat of violence, exclusion. Um, and so it wasn't difficult for me to... To believe when I, I came into the evangelical church later after a rather tumultuous teenage and, and early 20s life <laughs> you know the classic sex drugs and rock and roll kind of thing um, and to hear that God is angry with us he's opposed to us he um, is wrathful towards us angry and we needed Jesus to take that wrath upon himself so that we wouldn't um, be, be suffering. You know, God visited that anger at us upon Jesus because Jesus took my place, you know? Um, and it's, it, it was so bad that, that when Jesus took my place, God couldn't even look at him on the cross. You know, we sing songs about it. Um, you know, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. I had no problem saying that. Well, I did actually because there was a tension in me because I can understand that God 
doing that because that's the picture I've been given of him all, all, all my life. But something inside me was thinking, I thought God was better than that. I thought he was better than that. And I never had any answers until I began to meet God as, as you guys did. I began to understand that he's always been my parent. He's always been my mom and my dad. Uh, and so I, that set me wrestling with the whole concept. Well, if, if, if that's true, why was he angry with me? Why, why would he turn his face away from me? Why would he not let me approach him without Jesus, you know, like without the Jesus disguise on? <laughs> um, a really, a great struggle. Um, I mean, I've come the other side of that struggle now, but it was a massive struggle for me. To, on the one hand, I have this God who's saying, I'm your loving parent. I will both mother you and father you. And on the other hand, saying, I am a vengeful God, and I will strike you down if you don't do what I tell you. I really struggle, struggle with that whole balancing act, you know? Um, yeah, faced... I think I, I have probably and some people's eyes become lost <laughs> because I've turned my back on that angry God and that vengeful God. I love what you said, Felicia, you know, when your God concept is healed. And I think that's what's been happening over the last decade. My God concept is being healed and beginning to affect me as a person, uh, creating me and me more of a whole person. And, and and that's what salvation is about, isn't it? it it's yeah. coming into wholeness, being integrated, being um, made whole. It's not just going like Felicia, like you said. It's not just about what happens when you leave the planet, and um, and uh, constantly worrying with this threat of hopeless abandonment by by a God that you've been told he loves you, but if you step out of line, he abandons you. So I think it's very important what he pointed out, Felicia, that it's also connected to our ideas of judgment you know the whole thing about the cross what does it mean and it's interesting that people actually the evangelical movement if you think about it this is not now don't want to be too overcritical but like what he said john that some might consider you lost you know if you consider that people like john wesley when they had the revelation of the cross for them when they encountered jesus this way these were they were beaten as kids you know they were being told they're bad kids and they didn't just get a smack they were beaten with a belt like sometimes almost unconscious you know and that was their background you know this internalized i am bad and then you come and you see jesus on the cross and 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 then of course you think oh my god yeah that, that must mean he's taking my wrath that must mean you know i mean we all know the historical reasons behind all of that and you might be able to talk about that but um, it's. I think when, what changed for me is that instead of approaching um, the gospel from this place of um, I'm bad, you know, because that's where religion comes in, when you internalize that, and then it says, well, but you know, if you get Jesus, then you can be on God's good side. You still don't have a relationship with him. You're just protected from him, you know, instead of connected to him. And um, mm. But if when I saw it, that the basic human condition the problem is that we live like orphans in this world and not that we are bad that's when things change for me you know that that's yeah. i think that's the core revelation yeah 
it changed for me in terms of how I saw the cross. Yeah. Well, yeah, for me, the cross became, I still don't understand why the cross, if I'm truly honest. Um, the only thing I know is that it wasn't God that put Jesus there. Yeah. It was people that put Jesus there. And I don't mean by their sins, I mean by their actions there in Palestine in the first century. They physically took a man and, and nailed him yeah. to a tree because he threatened their religious stability. The, the irony is that they accused him of inciting rebellion and everything else. And 30 years after he's dead, they start their own rebellion, <laughs> which results in Rome burning Jerusalem to the ground. <laughs> you know, my, my whole thing of, of this idea of separation of God not looking at us, I realized is a falsehood. Yeah. That actually we separated ourselves from him and we lost love's guidance. That the whole thing of salvation is not about getting right with God in a sense where we're bad and we need to be made good, but that we need to be reconnected to love because it's only when we're connected fully to love that we can begin to live fully human lives. And I think if we're honest, we have to look at how that lie of separation has really fueled all of these interpretations and mm. ideas and theories about, um, you know, God on the cross and, and all of those kinds of things, right? And so if we begin from the place of separation, then it's very easy to accept that, yes, God turned his back on Jesus. Yeah. And so, but when there is no separation, right? When we look at it from the way John presents his gospel, where, you know, the father and I are one, or I, Jesus saying in, you know, John 16, I am not alone. The father is always with me. Um, when you begin with that, then you can turn and look at human alienation. And, mm. and I, I think it's so much easier to point outward all the time and to yeah. say, it's God's fault, God did this, than to really own ourselves yes. and humanity and, and what we are like when we are alienated from that love, right? And so, I mean, because I know for me, we were talking earlier about, you know, the parenting aspect of this and then projecting that onto God. And for me, I did not have um, consistent involved parenting in my life, right? And so my mom could say she was going to do X and then 20 minutes later, she was going to do something else or, you know, two days later, she's forgotten what she said or it was just not consistent. And so because of her inconsistency, it led me to not be able to trust her word or to trust mm. her, right? And, you know, my dad had his own issues and was absent in a lot of way. So it was easy for me to accept that, you know, you have this God who would turn his back on Jesus because, well, I hadn't seen consistency or a measure of trust in parenting. So I could, you know, project that same kind of belief that oh well okay of course you know a parent would do that to their child because my parent does that to me and and so it it eliminates the trust but when you go deeper like even even Jesus on the cross there's something that you have to look into the nature of God when he says you know father into your hands I commit my spirit right and 
that is the ultimate act of surrender. It's the ultimate act of trust to be able to commit ourselves to someone just with utter abandon. And so how if he believed that much about his dad that we would then say this same person would abandon him? You know, I just think we have to really start looking at all the layers of how, you know, which gets into a whole other thing with the whole us looking at it literally versus, you know, looking at it through a Christological lens and, and all those kinds of things. But I think there's so many invitations to come into it to address one, our own um, beliefs that we've been given about separation versus alienation, but then also trust, which is a, yeah. is a huge big issue here. And that, I mean, one of the things for me when I first began to, to explore this was I noticed what, that in the garden, it's the man who changes his pattern of behavior, not God. You know, and, and God doesn't even call him out and say, you bad children come out from hiding in the, in the trees. He says, where are you? You know, and it's the man who, who starts, well, well, you know, I, I was naked and, and I was afraid. And, and again, God doesn't accuse him of anything. He says, who told you that? Did, did you eat the fruit? And so the man, with every answer the man gives, he's, he's creating the alienation in his own mind. He is, I don't know if you've ever seen the Marx Brothers movie where uh, Groucho Marx is the president of this nation and there's a, another president coming to visit him and he starts to get anxious and worked up. I said, what if, it, what if he's coming to start a war? What if he's, and so he's so worked up and anxious that when he, he meets this other president and the president puts his hand out to shake his hand, Groucho Marx whacks him because he got himself so worked up and he's created this picture of um, an aggressor coming to, to try and steal from him. And I think that's what the man did. He created, some, built something up in his mind that, oh no, God is going to be so angry with me. He's going to smite me and I have to mitigate this. I know I'll blame the woman. <laughs> but then the woman kind of blames the serpent. <laughs> and it's all this... And so we, I think that's where the alienation began in our own minds. And actually what we've inherited from Adam is not sin, but a, a lifestyle, a pattern of life separate from love's guidance. And that is why God is always saying, come back to me, return to me. Because he knows that it's not sin that's destroying us. It's poor choices because we don't have the guidance of love around us and beside us and the ultimate in love is god is love <laughs> so that that was the kicking off point for me when i saw that that the man alienated himself god did not separate him even when he put him out of the garden you know he gives a reason for it doesn't it he says so that he won't live forever with the horror of alienation and corruption and, and fear and everything else can you imagine living with this bad enough living with it for the past 60 years for me. I don't want to live with it for another 60 or 60,000, <laughs> you know? Um, and so God saves him from that by, by removing him from the tree of life. And we've, we've saw that as punishment and God uh, unable to stand the man's presence, you know? I think about um, God being light, you know, and James talks about how, 
God is light and there's no shadow of turning in him, right? And so when you when you go back to the first garden in Eden and the man in that relationship, and I have my, my flashlight on my iPhone because you can see like the light, right? And so if the light is always shining towards you, the only way that the light is not coming to you, either something has to block the light to stop it, or you turn mm. your back on the light, you know? And so we, we want to talk so much about God removing himself. But again, it's like what you're saying, we don't think about the alienation that Adam likely created yeah. that stopped the light from shining at him. And then all, all the things that played out yeah. in that. And again, it's easy to, to scapegoat, right? I mean, we're so easy to go, oh, it was Eve. Oh, Eve did this, but we don't think about, well, what was happening in Adam that led yeah. to this moment? You know, yes. and, and the same thing with, with the cross, you know, when, when I read um, Jesus on the cross and him saying, you know, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? It's, it's easy for us because of all the things that we've experienced when, when we block the light to assume that that's true. Yeah. But as we begin to heal our own selves and we deal with our own feelings and emotions, we come to a place where you realize feelings are feelings and they're not necessarily good or bad, you know, wrong or right or true or false or whatever. They're not there to be judged, they're there to be felt, right? Yeah. And so, so we could say that Jesus felt something, but that doesn't mean it was true because he felt it. We all feel something and we let that feeling come up and then, you know, it passes through or God heals it or however the language is that you use for for that. But I think what we have done is we've gotten into our head to say, oh, him saying this means that this, this is true, instead of yeah. really dealing with what was going on internally with yeah. Jesus the man in this, you know, excruciating position. So well, it's interesting you, you say that because I've actually I've got a little note here of that scripture from Matthew. <laughs> and it, you know, it tells us that was it from the sixth hour until the ninth hour darkness came over all the land and I, I was taught that's when God turned his face away mm. you know because Jesus is carrying all of this sin of the world and, and it's so horrific God can't look at sin um, which I can't actually find anywhere in the Bible no it it even says uh, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it so it's basically it's like I'm not abandoning you in the darkness the light shining in the darkness you know yeah. and and, well, and, and so no, carry on. No, no. Um, I think that's what it really comes down to. How does how does God react to our brokenness? Does He turn away from it? Is He scared of it? Is He disgusted with it? Or does He dive headlong right into it? You know, mm. and I, that's what I think it's Baxter Kruger. I can't remember. It, it probably was Baxter or or Bruce Walker. But when um, when Jesus he dove headlong into the darkness to the sewage pit of humanity and the, the darkest part and what he found there was his father's arms and i mm. think that's the message of the gospel that that he comes for the lost you know he's not for those who are just a little bit lost he goes to the deepest part and um i think that's when when we realize that that there's nothing we need to hide from him that's when wholeness can come in that love reaches to the deepest and darkest part to to, to the things we want to hide to, in our shame, you know, and, and as you said with the garden, John, it's this whole thing about 
this misinterpretation where we were sent out of the garden, or no matter how you interpret that story, but that's where all the theologies come from. You know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's the, um, yeah, we understand that we, are, and we project our abandonment and our fear of him onto his face, you know, and, and we, we misrepresent him. And the whole Bible is basically the story of um, misunderstanding him. And like you said, but, Felicia. But know, this misunderstanding, Florian, yeah. the, early, the, the very early church fathers yeah. didn't see it that way. No, necessarily. They, didn't, no. they didn't see the separation and, and abandonment in those early days, you know. I mean, that, Paul, Paul talks about it in him, we live and move and have our being. And now open your eyes and say, and that, that's the call. It's to believe, believe, uh, believe that love yeah. and let it transform our lives. Yeah. Um, the darkness thing is interesting. When I sometimes when I speak about this, I talk about, you know. When darkness comes over the earth, what happens? Well, the stars come out. <laughs> but you can't see that light without the darkness. Those stars are always there. They're there in the daytime. You just can't see them until darkness comes. And as you say, Florian, light then shines in the darkness. And without before we had compasses, that's how they navigated the seas and the, and the, 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 the earth terrain. They, they went by the lights in the sky at night. You well, know, and we have to look at the way that we've maligned darkness, right? And so uh -huh. we've made darkness a bad thing instead of really being able to see the luminosity in the darkness. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. and so when we can integrate fully both, you know, evening and morning, light and darkness, and see them all as a, a thing of love, um, you know, then we're able to reframe our theological interpretations and the way we talk. But it, I mean, mm. we have really followed this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so it has to have this kind of dualistic split where, oh, this is good, this is bad. And yeah. there's nowhere really where you see um, that sort of mal intent about darkness, except for where man created it. Yeah, for, yeah, for me, the whole thing, on the cross is not that Jesus bore our sins, but he forbore our ill will towards him. In the cross, we just we demonstrated and displayed our ignorance and our ill will towards him by crucifying him, and he he bore it and said, "You know what? You're forgiven." Someone I read somewhere. I think it might have been Brian Zand, but it said, "You know, the cross doesn't." Uh, give you forgiveness it demonstrates forgiveness uh, th th and that's always that's that's always struck me that you're not forgiven because of the cross the cross just reveals that you're already forgiven <laughs> yeah as he forbears your ill will towards him no. You know what? While we're saying, while you were saying this, I, I had the thought, you know, this misunderstanding that humanity has about God that must create a lot of anger, deep-seated anger in us, you know, uh, about the nature of life, you know, the frustration we have to deal with in life. And oh, what if God said, you know, if you need someone to take the anger out on, here I am, you know. Wow. And when we did the worst to Him, He did His best to us. When we uh, met him with hatred, he met us with love, and that's that's what what he's calling us into. And um, that, that that's how I come to see it more and more. And in a way, you know, the, all these 
skewed theologies they had always to do with you know having something to fix in god you know as he said you know and and um and it, i've come to the conclusion that it's like we we project the whole romans 7 experiments onto god you know this i want to be kind but you know i want to punch you in the face you know kind of thing and, and we even said that about god isn't it you he wants to be loving but he needs to be just as well and we made justice this opposite of love and mercy and all those kind of things yeah because uh, the cross has always been presented as the method of changing god's mind about me <laughs> the cross changed god's mind about me it's like you know he turned over a new leaf in that that intertestamental period <laughs> jesus spent 400 years convincing him that we could be saved <laughs> It's almost, it's almost like that, you know, like, you know, without the cross, you can't be forgiven. You can't be redeemed. You can't be. But Paul says that in the cross, he wasn't, God was not counting our sins against us. That. And the psalmist in Psalm 103, the psalmist said, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. And that's why I struggle with, I don't know what the cross was for, <laughs> other than for, the thing that's demonstration so John, when you when you see that even up until the cross through throughout um you know the hebrew canon throughout all of that you see god consenting to man's misinterpretation you see yeah. and and so what what has been fixated upon is god all-powerful omnipotent you know this the power right but that's mm. You really look, when you really look through the eyes of love, you see vulnerability, you see surrender, you see consent all the way up through yep. the cross. When and and when you're seeing these um the contradictions and you know all of these things that make God look so bad in the scripture, um, they're not necessarily they say more, Brad Josek says they say more about our interpretation of God yes. than it does about God. Right. Yes. And so in that we see God consenting even to our misinterpretation of him, even to our not fully understanding, even all the way up to, you know, this experience on the cross, which for a lot of Christians has been kind of um, reasoned through penal substitutionary atonement theory. Right. People have always left off the theory. And so never telling us that there are other theories out there of why this happened. And PSA is just one of those yeah. theories. It's not the absolute truth yeah. of really what happened, but you do see consent. You do see consent yep. all the way through. You see God, yeah. you know, in Jesus consenting all the way through to, to us without, without feeling the need to correct it, to, um, make it right trusting that love would reveal love's kind in the moment when when we are ready to receive that revelation and that is and that has been the truth whether it's it was the person on the other cross beside him um who and who jesus turns to and said today you'll be with me in paradise you know to nicodemus coming by night and seeing the revelation of love in there or whatever but there has always been a point in a journey where love reveals itself to us and all the while consenting to all the hell that we create while we're wrong, you know? And that is, that is forgiveness. That is loving kindness. That's mercy. That is grace. I mean, it's, 
it's all of those things that yeah. that God is that we say love is in action. It's interesting you, because as I look back in my my spiritual journey, I can see moments where love was revealing itself. I could not perceive love mm. because I didn't know what love was in the world, never mind in the spirit. And so I continually misunderstood and misinterpreted and completely missed the point of love's revealing. I'm beginning to understand it. And I don't say I understand it. I'm beginning to understand it now much more, but I missed it for more than 20 years. In fact, more than that, even before I, I came into any faith journey, I look back and say, oh, that was love revealing itself. That was love being revealed. And I totally missed it. And I, I just wonder, it's almost like we, we are still rooted in ancient primitive religion. You know, the crops have failed. Well, there must be a deity that's angry with us. So we, we need to do something to make him happy with us. And so we'll we'll have a feast and, and worship him and hopefully the next crop will be better. The, the river has dried up. We've done something to make the ancient God angry. We must do something to make the, the water flow again. And it's almost like the cross is presented in that way. Mm. You know, we, we think ourselves so sophisticated and we have all of these theologies and doctrines, but actually we are still practicing ancient uh, primitive religion. It's Richard. Indigenous, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, from the Celts, from the, the tribes in Borneo, from the headhunters, from the the Picts and the Vikings, we're just following in their footsteps. <laughs> and and e and even our so-called Western civilization, you know, when Constantine. Constantinianism hijacked the gospel, you know. Um, it's still the same stuff, you know. It was based yeah. on the same ideas, and that's where all this oppression of indigenous people, all this stuff we are dealing with right now comes from. It's because Jesus' message was so powerful. Every uh, All that these powers could do is try and hijack it, you know. I think that, yeah. that's what I've come to the conclusion, you know. And well, it's, when you look at, you look at all of the, the church councils, especially yeah. from Constantine onwards. They're all presided over by Roman emperors. There's Roman emperors who are deciding the church's theology. And the bishops go along with it because they want to keep the patronage of Rome, which is the power at the time. They want the church to have the patronage of, of the power. And so they, they bend ever so slightly. But, you know, if you bend just a, a degree or two, you're going to miss something, what you were aiming at. And so all of these Roman emperors, you know, Justinian is the one who had Oregon declared a heretic because he believed in universal salvation. The council didn't declare him a heretic. Justinian insisted that the documents be appended declaring Oregon a heretic. And so there's, you know, where universal salvation stopped being discussed in the church. And if you look at his that's another topic. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I mean that that's I think where uh, Felicia pointed that out. You know, uh, it it is it is related. To, you know, to the whole issue is related to because if you can make people to internalize, they deserve punishment. 
And I mean, all our systems, you know, everything that's going on in the world right now, if we can convince people they deserve this punishment. Mm. And what better way to do than hijack the gospel and tell them, you know, God couldn't even just forgive. He needed to get his piece of flesh from someone. And I remember when I got hit in the face by, by one of my step parents and, 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 and uh, my nose was bleeding, I stood there and had so much internalized the lie that, that I thought, oh, yeah, I deserve that, you know, um, because of something silly I've done, you know. But that's, mm-hmm. where, where, that's where people, that's, um, our institutions are full of people who internalize this, they are bad, you know, and, and that's where we need this revelation of love. And, and, and I think that's the key to, um, to, yeah. to help people, not just on a religious sense, you know, in, in a real practical, yeah. um, everyday sense, yeah. Yeah, because I realize I've done it along the along along times as well. But but when you you meet love, you try to package it in doctrine and theology. You do, and I've done it. You know, um, I'm in the place where I'm trying to unpackage all of that that I've wrapped it up in. But essentially, that's what we want to do with it, isn't it? Because he's our God, he's the Christian God, and so we need to package it with Christian wrapping. <laughs> Which is well, doctrine, theology, practice, you know, prayer, whatever. Uh, you remember, I'm German, so it needs to be put in a in a, in a user manual, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! The only uh, it's the only only thing the German language is good for. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. But Felicia, you, you you mentioned that scripture about Jesus saying, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And we've pin, we've pinned this whole doctrine on that cry, haven't we? Of God turning His face away from Jesus. I mean, it's back it's backed up by all of that stuff we've we've spoken about: the fear, the alienation, the misinterpretation. But then we come to this and we latch onto this and say, "Ha! You see, Jesus agrees with us." God abandoned him. I think for me, you know, though, sitting actually in Psalm 22, particularly right now as a Black woman in the world with so much going on, Hmm. I identify with it so much because, you know, when when you're looking at a Psalm, you're looking at one, what is the genre, you know, of the Psalm, and then what is the social setting of the Psalm, right? And so, this Psalm, Psalm 22 is a lament. And one of the possibilities that they say of why, um, you know, Jesus used that first line of that particular Psalm on the cross is because he was in such anguish with, you know, lack of breath and stuff that he couldn't necessarily quote the whole thing, but then everyone around him who's been raised in the temple and knows the, you know, the Torah and the Hebrew canon, they would immediately call to mind um, that in the entirety of that psalm. And so there are some people mm-hmm. who actually believe that's what was going on. So given that, when you when you like actually look at this psalm, Psalm 22 is like, it's a psalm of despair, yes, but it's all, but it also ends with great hope, which you know, you see the truth of their not being abandoned in that. But it's um, you know, for me, the, the, the thing about this is one, it's an invocation. Right. And so it begins with this heart cry of, you know, 
why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And just this week alone with, you know, the George Floyd uh, trial going on, Derek, I should say the Derek Chauvin trial going on with Dante Wright, Dante being, Wright. You, know, you know, Adam Toledo's, the video coming out from that, you, you have this invocation of what feels like, again, I'm back to my feeling of, of you know, despair. And you have this honest complaint being poured out of like, what the hell is going on right now? Where are you in the midst of all this? And, and this Psalm is filled with just begging. You know, there's like honest begging of like, do something about this. And the overarching theme, several times you see dehumanization in this Psalm. You know, there's a place in the Psalm yes. where it's like, I am a worm or something like that, which yeah. is total dehumanization. And then when you think of Jesus on the cross, you, that is the ultimate, you know, sanctioned act of dehumanization to kill someone mm. on a cross, you know? And well, in addition, in that it wasn't just they killed him, he didn't have that little cloth on. <laughs> the dehumanization and the humiliation was, was that he was crucified in his nakedness Naked. for everyone to laugh at and mock. And, yes. Yeah. Yes. Total. Which is what happens to the people in society today. Yeah. And so I see so many parallels, even to today's time with that song and understanding, you know, that feeling in there that I, I just think is so, is so many layers to it and is so much more to it than just this sense of um, using it to say that God abandoned Jesus. Because when you get to the end of it, there is this deep assurance that one, that the psalmist has been heard, but also that God is there, you know, um, that he has not. It actually starts with, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with, but you have not forsaken me. You are not a far off, you know? And so you go all well, the way interesting. Just you saying that because the darkness lifts from the land, Matthew tells us, and Jesus cries out the first line of Psalm 22. Right. And then he finishes with, it is finished. That's his last breath. Well, that's the first and last lines of Psalm 22. You know, that last line in Psalm 22, he has done it. When they translated it to Greek, they translated it tetelestai. Yes. This whole Psalm encapsulates. Yes. The, it's, it's, it's incredible when you, when you understand that and you realize, my goodness, Jesus is saying this moment has already been recorded. Yes. It, it's incredible. And Matthew, but John, even, some let's of Psalm go back 22, to the other he? garden too. Let's go back to the other garden. So at the beginning with Adam and Eve, right? When Adam and Eve, um, you know, take the bite of the fig or the pomegranate or whatever piece of fruit it was, they run from God, right? And they sow fig leaves to hide. Mm. So you have this picture of they are naked. They sow fig leaves to hide. Oh, yeah. And then when you go to the cross, there is Jesus in the fullness of who he is, completely naked, but he does not hide. He does not hide his feelings. He does not hide yeah. his stress. He does not hide his despair. He is completely honest and open. Wow. And back to the other garden, there is Adam and Eve running from. It says like God is walking through the garden and he's looking and man is hiding yeah. because he's afraid. And then in the other place where Jesus is now on the cross, he is completely open, exposed, naked and unashamed, mm -hmm. truthful, not afraid because he knows, one, that his Abba is with him, two, that his Abba is love, three, that his Abba can handle any bit of 
you know, shit, I want to say, that's yeah. thrown his yeah. way. He can handle it all. You know what I'm saying? And so well, essentially, but it's shit that's no thrown under. There's no fix. There's nothing no. that's covering. It is who he is. And that is the invitation that love invites us to. That's the perichoresis. That's the dance. It is to be completely open, honest, exposed. And there, as Florian said earlier, there in our deepest darkness and despair, love comes into that place wow. with us. And love aims its fury at everything that stands in the way of us being integrated fully into love. Everything that is keeping us alienated, love shines the light on and says, you are free here to reveal your fullest self so that you can see that you and I are one. We've never been apart and you can be completely whole and your, your, the truth of your being can shine here. This is where you can live and move and have your being. Mm. And that was the difference between the two places. Yeah, you know, that's good for but sure. if we get stuck in forsaken and abandoned and thinking God's not there, we miss the invitation of yeah. the dance of love that's right there for wow. us in this act. And it's, I mean, where did we get this idea that God can't look at sin or sinners anyway? Because it's not there in the Bible. In fact, the Bible states the opposite in the Psalms and in Proverbs that the, the eyes of the Lord are keeping watch on the wicked and the good. So well, where do some we get people this? have interpreted holy as set apart, meaning that God is so set apart, and because sin is not something that's holy, yeah. then His set apartness He can't look at it, you know. And so that was where yeah. that kind of got twisted and all screwed yeah. up along but, the way. But I, I see it the other way. I see it the fact that that sin can't touch God, and in in a sense that it cannot affect Him. If God is self-sufficient within Himself, He cannot be affected by anything outside of himself if if self-sufficiency is true of him i think and we so, have to go back to and look at what the real meaning of sin is which is harmatia which means to miss the mark yeah. and so really when you're looking at this word all we're saying is that us and our humanity is missing the mark of the truth of our being you know yeah. and there inside of missing the mark there's a, there's always an invitation of realignment yeah. which is what justice is right justice yeah. is just right alignment it's right alignment. Yeah. And so there's always this invitation, but we've created this idea that sin is, you know, again, it's bad, it's, it's dark, yeah. it's all these things instead of what it really is, is to say, you know, you are out of alignment with the truth of your being. And there inside mm. of love is an invitation for you to come back into alignment, to come back into yeah. alignment with love. So, so if, that, if that's true, then God is there in the darkness yeah over calvary that's the incarnation that's the gospel story he came to yeah. us yeah. otherwise there's no gospel for me i have to believe that that jesus is, is, is crying out my god my god not not necessarily because he doesn't believe that god is there he, you know it's not that he's he's on the cross saying god has done a runner <laughs> you know he's he's got his nikes on and, and got as far away as he can but but that is he yes he's pointing us to psalm 22 as you rightly said felicia but is he also expressing something of the the human condition he's blaming god isn't he god why are you so far from me i, I think me? god where are you why didn't you come through for me why didn't you answer my prayers why didn't you do what I wanted. Well, 
what I think what what is what what is happening there too is that he also speaks about that this idea of God that Jesus in his culture had the warrior God that comes with power mm. and violence. Mm. That God did abandon him, but in it he met wow. his own. Wow, in, in that feeling of abandonment, he met his Abba, who is not like the gods we invent. Wow. And but it's again, you know, you can't package that in a nice five-point experience, <laughs> the emotions, everything that comes with it. And especially we in the Western part of the world, we, we lost all of that. You know, it's all about, yeah, as Felicia well, said, see, dualisms we've created. That begs the question then, Florian, is all of our theology, has it most of it been created out of a paucity of experience of God? Do we create theology because of a paucity of love in our lives? And we need to fill that gap somehow. Yeah. I actually wow. still see that. I, I think that a lot, there are times when I participate in things <laughs> and I walk away um, with a both and one, I'm, I really honor um, people's study and their intellect and that, but then I also see where really what people are after is an encounter and, and an mm. absolute experience of God loving them that has to happen outside of a cerebral context. And yeah. so we build this with a lot of theology and a lot of things about God because we haven't experienced God loving us. And there, is, and I, I just know that for myself, I know there is a complete difference in mm. even writing about God's love or preaching about God's love and the experience of God loving me when mm. I experience the love of God for myself, everything in my life changed. It changed. There's nothing that was untouched in my life yes. after that experience. And I, and I know so much of that is people on a quest for that, you know, that ultimately is, is what they're after. Yeah. And I think you're right, Felicia. I think we are on, we're all on that, regardless of where we are, believer, non-believer, pagan, heathen, whatever word, words we want, terms we want to use. The fact is that we're all looking for that encounter of love. You know, I think a lot of Christians mocked um, U2 when they, they released that song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But when I heard that song, I thought, he gets it. Mm. He gets it. Because I don't care what people say, they are spiritual people. You know, Bono, Larry, Edge, they, they were, they're spiritual people. They've been involved in charismatic church and everything else, just like the rest of us have. But I thought, he gets it. I've held the hand of the devil, I've spoken in tongues of angels, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. What? And when we, when we haven't found what we're looking for, we try to create something. We try to create a structure for ourselves, don't we? You know, I've done it. We've all done it. And I think a lot of times theology is just a structure we create to replace love, the presence, if you like. And I go back to, um, I don't, I can't recall where it is in the scripture, but where Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you may know him and the one he sent. This is eternal life. This is eternal life that you may know, you know, and that's mm. that's a, like a real intimate, passionate kind of like we would think having yeah. intercourse with a partner, kind of knowing. It's a deep kind of knowing. That is yeah. is not a in our head knowing, and so the only way that you experience such an ecstatic thing is to experience it, right? 
you know, so you're not like sitting mm. with your wife talking about having sex. No, you actually engage in the act, you know? And, and so I think somewhere along the line, we have lost that, I call it the circle dance, but we have lost that knowing and, and we've, we've missed it and settled for something far less. And I hope that we get back to it. Mm. So here's the thing then, if it's a lie, if God looks at sin and sinners and why, why else would Jesus be crying out this? What is it in Psalm 22 that he wants to point us towards? I mean, look, you know, I, I don't think anyone would disagree that Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. You know, Matthew even quotes parts of it, doesn't he, about mocking him and spitting on him and calling him names and stuff. Um, but if, if God can't, I can look at sinners and sin, if he didn't turn his face away from Jesus, what is Jesus trying to point us towards when he cries out and says, listen, you need to read this again with different eyes? I, I think for me, I'm looking at this solely as, again, a black woman in the United States and I see lament, um, you know, mm. and a lot of times Psalms, um, when they had lament, they were what's called an impregnatory Psalm, which means they had a spoken curse actually in them. But this particular lament does not. It's one of the few laments in the Psalm, mm. when you like studying the Psalms, that does not have a curse. But I also think, that Jesus shows us a way forward. And that way forward is truth telling. And truth telling is what transforms us. You know, that is the journey to healing is being truthful and you can't heal what's not revealed. And I think in his mm. lament, he was leading us to hope. But so often when we're experiencing hellacious moments, we try to gloss it over. Or we, don't, we want to deny it or act um, what we consider faith field or whatever and we miss the honesty and mm. I do think inside of what he was saying he was being honest about his feelings but it was also a model for us that we can see later and and that lament is a way that leads to hope it leads to transformation but you can't get to remember there's a scripture even that says like Jesus endured the cross for the joy yeah. that was set before him but yeah. you can't get to joy without the cross. And so oh. Jesus' act on the cross and him saying that psalm was lament. I mean, and we don't know mm. how to grieve. We in the church don't. We have been no. taught everything but suffering and grief. And we see his raw suffering in him yeah. stating that psalm. It's interesting. I, I just finished recording a podcast with David Tenson, the poet. Uh, and David and I spoke about this, about the, the lack of lament. And, and that's part of why he does what he does with his poetry. He wants yeah. to explore that place where the church doesn't want to go. Yeah. Um, and it's lamentation. Yeah. You know, uh, it's funny because when I read Psalm 22, it's almost like there are two different voices speaking. You have this guy who's going, oh, woe's me, it's all, it's all coming to an end and and then you've got this guy going, yeah, God's great. God is good. And, and you're like, what is going on with this guy? You know, what yeah, is have happening we, here? Have you not all been there? You know, have <laughs> you not all been there? Didn't we say, God, where are you? And now, uh, but I hope you're going to bring me through this, you know? It, it, and that's life, is it? it? It's without this dualism. 
that's how life looks like it's messy it's um but mm. you're connected to it you have full experience of it like felicia said eternal life is a quality of life it's an experience it's relationship it's and the same thing was the cross the cross must be experienced it's not a doctrine mm. when you experience the cross when you look at the crucified one and you and i think it's uh, you probably know that felicia it's richard raw i think is that you need to come underneath it you know mm. you need to experience it and when you look at him and he looks back at you and and that's the franciscan idea that it transforms you the the trust that he has in his Abba being there in the midst of suffering and feeling abandoned that's what empowers us to say we take up our cross you know even when we feel abandoned we we have this assurance he's there and then we can speak truth to power and we can walk through suffering and 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 it's so sad that we created these doctrines out of it that robs us of all these experiences that he wants to bring us into and how he heals the world through self-giving radically forgiving co-suffering love and to quote Brad Jersey and yeah and and it's not through some mechanism that 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 we came up with mm. and John I'm reminded you were saying um Psalms 22 like it starts with this one voice and it ends with another it almost feels like it's two people yeah. and when you said that I was reminded of um uh, there's a uh, black female theologian right now that's catching a lot of heat in the media her name is dr shaniqua walker barnes mm, and that, yeah. she wrote a um, prayer for um, a book that sarah bessie edited it's a compilation of a lot of different people but and what she's catching heat for is her psalm is actually structured kind of like psalm 22 and that mm. it starts with um something that seems very crude. I think it starts with like, I hate white women or something like that, right? And she um, finishes the Psalm, but the Psalm finishes almost in a different voice of, of a hope and a belief of a better future, a reimagined future of, of, of people coming together. And, um, but she was telling how this Psalm was birthed from an experience of uh, um, a colleague using the N word, but with a, you know, the ER, not like you would hear it in rap and mm -hmm. saying it in her presence as if it wasn't anything and just the despair that it brought to her that things would never be different, that things would never mm -hmm. change, that it would always be this wow. kind of bleak, you know, dark thing. And she pours out her heart in the Psalm. And in the pouring out of all of the pain and the distress and feeling dehumanized and not seen, when she empties herself and gets to the bottom, there at the bottom of her lament and her grief was hope. And the poem ends, her prayer ends with, with hope. And, um, but of course, people are screenshotting only the first part. Yeah, yeah. Which is the but, same thing that's kind of happened with Psalms 22 and Jesus on the cross. It's like taking it out of context. Starting the first part of that psalm, they're not getting down when he yeah. gets, you know, to the bottom once it's emptied, and there in the bottom is the hope. There he is going, you know, you have not abandoned me. You're here with me, and we we miss that part. We miss that part. Yeah. And we formed this whole opinion and this whole thing around only the first part of that screenshot. Yeah. You know, so. Well, yeah. Psalm 22 has been misunderstood and so is that lady. She's been misunderstood because it, dare I say it, it suits some people's purpose to misunderstand and to create misunderstanding. 
as it has in the religious world yeah. with this psalm. Yeah. It's, it, you know, and isn't it strange that people look and find offence in love? They would rather have the anger, they would rather have the, the wrath, they would rather have the punishment, the, the vengeance. They, they prefer that to love. That and Jesus is just you know is pointing us to to the the wrath and vengeance in this psalm, but it's not the wrath and vengeance of God. Right. It's the wrath and vengeance of men. Men are doing this to him. God doesn't crucify his son. Yeah, anywhere in Scripture where you read, it's always put at the feet of people. You know, it's always like, you killed yeah. him, you killed him, you killed him. Yeah. It never says God killed him. It always says God raised him. Yeah, but yet we teach that God put Jesus on the cross, don't we? It's very interesting. But it's it's like because you've got saying these. This is what men are doing. They're like strong bulls. They're like dogs tearing me to pieces. They're gambling for my clothes. They pierce my hands and my feet. But they have forgotten who you are. I mean, that's that's that's. The, Verse three, isn't it? Verse three, four, and five, I think, in, in Psalm 22. But they have forgotten who you are, the Holy One of Israel, who redeems and rescues his people. Yeah. There's this voice, it's like you say, Felicia, there's, there's this consistent and constant voice of hope through it all. And what I found astonishing when I, I read this Psalm properly, really, was that he is describing all of this horror, uh, an inevitable death. I mean, there's no doubt, you know, there's no question his death is inevitable. But he says, I will praise you in the congregation of the saints. All you people praise him. And that, that I struggled with that for so long. Like, why? How could he say that? Because regardless of whether it's, it's David or Asaph or whoever wrote the psalm, they think they're facing certain death because of the, what's happened to them. You know, David's thinking, I've been hunted down by Saul. He's going to kill me. That's my end. It's almost like a Shakespearean tragedy where no matter what the hero does, he dies in the end. <laughs> you know, like Othello or something. And, but yet, there's this voice saying the contrary. It's like, I'm going to live and I'm going to praise your name and I'm going to lift you up in the congregation and they should all praise you too. It's astonishing. And that, that's at the end of the psalm he even says those who sleep in the dust basically the dead will remember you and all the nations of the earth will return to you so he's basically saying yeah also all the victims of violence those who sleep in the dust the dead will rem they will know that you have not abandoned them in their suffering and yeah. you know you will actually raise them back to life and that's what's going to happen to me that, that that's the beautiful thing about the whole mm. psalm it's not just speaking about his suffering he's speaking this what I'm experiencing, yes. experiencing with every victim of injustice, with all the victims of oppression, and they all will return to you, and they all will remember you. Wow. Yeah, yeah we all go through darkness, don't we? And pain and horror. But it's, I think the thing that, that suddenly was revelatory for me in all of this was reading verse 24. You know, that I can see your faces, you know exactly what, what verse 24 says. You know, he has not 
abandoned me nor hidden his face. He has heard my cry for help. Wow. When I read that, it blew this whole thing out of the water for me. That, that was one of the things that really began my whole journey. In fact, Florian, you and I were declared heretics at a church in Germany for preaching this, weren't we? <laughs> and we're told we, we would never be invited back. Still are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I've made it as a, an itinerant preacher. I've been banned from a church. <laughs> but but it's, that is offensive to people. God did not punish his son or turn his face from him, but heard his cry for help. And again, like you say, Florian, going beyond that, it takes it to all who sleep in the dust. He has not abandoned you. He has heard your cry for help. Wow. It reminds me too, and I, I think you mentioned the scripture earlier, but you know, in 2 Corinthians, where it says, you know, God was in Christ yeah. reconciling the world to himself. And I, I remember uh, for me coming into this was really through reading The Shack, um, Paul Young's mm. book, The Shack, where he has, um, you know, God, Papa, having the same nail scarred um, hands that Jesus has. And the image for me, and I, I just remember having so to powerful. sit the book yeah. down, like I could not in my mind fathom that there was this, you know, that God, Jesus and Holy Spirit all had endured this together, which, which makes so much sense now. But back then I was just like, oh my gosh, that can't be true. And then to turn to, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.19 and see it right there that yeah. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and you see it like oh no he did not yeah. abandon jesus on the cross he was right there enduring and suffering right with his son you know um, well it's, it's like you said at the very beginning felicia how could god have turned his face away if he's the one in in jesus right. doing his work if he's one with jesus how can how can the, the trinity not suffer the same fate together how yeah. Because if you want to be theological about it, there cannot be a division within the Godhead. The Godhead lives in perfect harmony and unity. So there cannot be any division or any looking at turning away from one another. You know, no, love, never, love never turns away. He, he, he even says, when I be lifted up on the cross, you will know that I always do what my father is doing. He says that in, I think it's, it's John eight or something <laughs> i wrote it down but but i can't read my own writing but um <laughs> <laughs> that's not unusual um but um so he's basically saying you know i only do the things i see the father doing and even when i be lifted up on the cross you will know that i always do what my father is doing because that's what my father is doing he's pouring out his life and his life out for those who would rather hate him and kill him and think he's against them and paint his face in the worst possible manner you can imagine he's still pouring out his love towards them even those who kill his son and it's and and it's the father's love or the, the motherly love as well you know that that comes through through jesus that's yeah. being poured out when jesus pours out his blood it's the father's love that's being poured out it's yeah. his life being poured out into into the earth and brings that bring forth healing and we always turn it up say that jesus did something to god when it's actually god in him doing it to us and healing us well isn't it interesting that we, we look for the, the god of fury and vengeance to pour out 
upon the earth, and yet it's actually us who pour out our fury and vengeance on him. And he bears, he, it. Produce the power, he bears it. Right? He so bears it. Fury and vengeance seems like strength. And so we we want a God that's strong, um, you know, and so that's why in our mind we can accept such lies because we bought into the lie that power is, you know, this is the first thing that when you, when you start really preaching and teaching about love, everyone's, you know, pushback is, oh, well, I don't want to be a doormat or I don't want to be a nimby pimby or weak or whatever. And there's this perception that love is weak. And I'm like, love is the most furious thing. Love is fierce. It is, it is, you know, strength incarnate. I mean, but that is not um, from Constantinople on, that's not our Constantine on, that's not mm. what we've been taught. We've been taught power. We've been taught fury vengeance. We've been taught war. And so, and those are the projections that we then put onto God that we feel most comfortable mm. with. But you, and you see that, don't you? The cross is a perfect example of it, Felicia, of love in the face of violence. It takes everything that violence can throw at it and rises again. They couldn't kill love. They killed the flesh, but they couldn't kill love. And love, love returns again and again. Like you say, there's always an offer of love there. Wherever we are in life, wherever we are in our spiritual walk or, or journey of life, there's a, there are always opportunities to encounter love. No matter how much we ignore it, no matter how much we push it away, we can't squash love. We can't kill it. It's why I will never preach anything else but love. <laughs> I just don't mm. know what else. I, and I, I know it frustrates a lot of people because they don't understand it. Or, yeah. you know, it's like you said, they have all the, these different ideas of what love is. But when you experience love loving you, and that really sanctifies and cleanses your perception and your ideas, and you experience it, you understand it. And everything that you do then is informed by love. It just is, you know, it becomes really a part of who you are, really all of who you are. It, it yeah. transforms you. It is, it is the resurrection, you know, or at least for me, it has been. Yes, yeah. It, that's it's what revolutionized my life. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean that's what Jesus did. That's what he came to. You know, I, I came to reveal your name, your true nature, who you really are. You know, and no one knows the Father but the Son and whoever you choose to reveal him. And for me, even his story in Luke fifteen, it, I see it now as a him try him trying to correct the whole misreading of Genesis. You know, in the Garden story, he's saying no, that's how God really is. He didn't abandon Adam and Eve. You know, and and I think they understood that. That's where they were angry with him. Yeah. And so that, that's what it's all about. It's all about love in the end. Yeah. But, and I, I, I don't mean that those of us who preach love are <laughs> little Jesuses, but, but we face the same thing in modern Christianity, yeah. where when we bring love, it, it challenges people's concept of, of God, of religion, of everything they've built their lives upon. And it is a threat. And it's a threat that has to be extinguished. And so you're declared heretics or, it's the same with 
with uh, Black Lives Matter. It's the same with women's rights. These are threats to established systems and they must be squashed. And so they're, they're slandered, they're ostracized. There are media campaigns against them. There are, you know, all kinds of things, writings against them, you know. I mean, I read some of the things that some of the women, you know, like uh, Amy Mann, Amy Bird and people like that, Sarah Bessie, the, the things that they get said about them, um, they're all lies because they're challenging a system that's set up to benefit certain groups of people. And it's exactly what Jesus faced. He challenged a system that was set up to benefit the religious people. And they killed him in order to maintain their, their power base for no other reason. They, they dressed it up in religious language. You know, the nation that must be saved, we sacrifice one man. But actually, it was their power base that they were, they were preserving. And I think it's still the same today um, where love is preached. And there are many people preaching love, but it's a threat to established power bases and control. Um, and so some of us face the fury of that. <laughs> and we're ostracized and pushed aside and miscalled and misunderstood. But love sustains us in it. That's the irony of it. <laughs> and that, love is what that, actually sustains us through it. That's where that's where this psalm is so powerful. Mm. Yeah. When we feel abandoned and everyone abandoned us because we stood up for love, we know that he hears us and we we remember him. Yeah. Well, we remember love. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you, Felicia. Thank you, Florian. It's great to, to have your, your thoughts and you put some things in a much better way than I would have gone across on my own. <laughs> so I'm very happy about that. And it's always a pleasure just to catch up with you, you folks. So I will leave you and love you. Bye-bye. <laughs>